Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. Hi everyone, it's Ben. Today I'm joined by Li Minxiao, Head of Asia at the Global Wind Energy Council, the Wind Energy Trade Association. We will be talking about wind energy development in Asia and about Vietnam offshore wind. It was a pleasure to receive Li Ming on the show and my main takes from our discussion are as follows. First, Li Ming started her career as a climate activist and it's really striking to see how over the past two decades, climate has moved from very marginal issues to the top of the political agenda. Second, Asia is the biggest wind market in the world with about 60% of the global capacity added in the region, with China and India being the main two markets. Third, feed-in tariff is an important mechanism to kickstart an industry as it allows developers to discover the cost of developing new electricity generation projects in the country. Starting directly with an auction system leads generally to grant projects to very aggressive developers unable to deliver those projects. If you like the show, please leave a comment and a rating on the show on your podcast provider. It allows listeners to discover the show. Thank you. Hi, Liming. Welcome to the show. You're heading a pack at the Global Wind Energy Council. Could you present the Global Wind Energy Council and introduce your institution's goal and what have been the recent initiatives that you have been working on in the region? It's my pleasure to be here. Global Wind Energy Council is the Wind Energy Trade Association. Being a trade association means that our major aim is to make wind energy penetrate to a wider geographic coverage. And by doing that, we need to ensure that energy transition is really happening everywhere with the right policy framework to support that. So our main goal is actually to do the policy advocacy to make sure the right policy is there for the wind energy. And at the same time, we also represent the wind energy at different international policy forums, including IEA, IRENA, UFCCC, where we act as the voice and representation, not only for wind energy, but also for renewable energy industry as a whole. And regarding our activities in the region, our regional office in Singapore started actually in the middle of 2019, which is half a year before the pandemic. And our focus is on Southeast Asia to ensure that energy transition happens in this region and also East Asia, including Taiwan, Japan, Korea. We're not covering China and India because we have two separate offices covering these two major, major renewable energy market in Asia. A little bit on the Southeast Asia region that we have been very much focusing on Southeast Asia when we started and back at the time about three years ago. Southeast Asia, if you talk about energy transition, it hasn't really happened there. But the past three years, we've seen major, major transformation of this topic being embraced by a number of national governments in the region. Some of the examples are like Vietnam's announcement of net zero by the middle of the century last year in Glasgow at COP26, and also a major, major embracement of a similar kind of commitment in the Philippines, in Indonesia, and in other places. That means that we do see lots of changes on renewable energy development in the region. And I believe we also played a, a major role, especially in Vietnam. In the past year, we've been advocating for higher offshore wind target in the PDP-8, which is still being finalized as of today. But we've seen really good and ambitious target being introduced in the PDP-8, which we hope will be finalized soon in a few weeks. It seems that you're doing a lot and there is still plenty to do in the region. 
Could you tell a bit more about your career and how you have started to work uh, in the wind industry? Yeah, I actually started my career as a climate activist working with uh, WWF on climate and energy issue back in 2003. And 2003, I was quite lucky to join uh, my first conference of the party of UFCCC, which is a COP9. And if you compare now we're talking about COP26, so that really is like a long time ago. Yeah. So by saying that it's a long time ago, it really means that back in that time, in the early 2000s, the issue of climate change was really a marginal issue, even in the sustainability world. And this past almost two decades is also the time that we see this issue, climate change, transformed from a pretty marginal issue into one of the most important global issues. And the real change actually happened between 2007 and 2010, that we see this issue to start to top the global political agenda and then just gradually become the most important topic right now in international politics. And so that exposure to the international climate negotiation process at a very early stage gave me the opportunity to form that deep understanding of international politics on climate change, and also to observe the development and the formation of the carbon market. And that's also how I came into renewable energy industry in 2008. So since 2008, I started to work with the wind industry. And then the past 10 years, or more than 10 years, was the time that we saw the transformation of the renewable energy industry or the wind industry that we saw it from uh, marginal energy sources into a mainstream energy sources, even in Asia, in some of the developing countries. And you're covering the APAC region at the Global Wind Energy Council. Could you give us an overview of the developments of wind energy in the region, whether it's onshore or offshore? Maybe just highlight the most dynamic country in this region well, at the moment. Well, we can start with an overview. Asia Pacific actually is probably the most important market for the wind and for the whole renewable industry, because it represents more than half of the global market. Just to give you a, a couple of stats, by end of 2021, if you look at the annual wind new installation, Asia Pacific had about 55 gigawatt of new installation. And what does that mean? That represents about 59% of the global new capacity. So that's more than half of the global market in one year. And if we look at the cumulative market, Asia Pacific represents about 400 gigawatt of the total global cumulative wind installation, which represents about 48% of the global cumulative market. So basically, this market is about half of the global market. So that's an overview of where Asia Pacific is in the global picture. But if we look into the details, we can divide the market of Asia-Pacific into tiers. Tier 1, China and India, these are the global players in the renewable energy market. So they are not only like Tier 1 for Asia-Pacific, they basically belongs to the Tier 1 in the global renewable energy market. And these markets mainly started as an onshore market about a decade ago, and now all moved into kind of different stage of offshore wind market. China is again leading the global offshore market because of the size, the resources, and lots of reasons. India is starting its offshore journey, but we believe it soon can be a major offshore player in the future. And the second tier in Asia, you can look at East Asia, like Japan, Korea, Taiwan. These countries, 
end of 2020 or join that whole club of net zero by the middle of the century. And we believe that for this market, offshore wind uh, will play a major, major role in their journey of fulfilling or meeting their net zero target by the middle of the century. And this market, this three market, are also traditionally has been onshore market, but due to the land size and resources limitation, it doesn't really have too much of a future for onshore, but the offshore potential is really big and huge. And the third tier, if we look at Southeast Asia, that is led by Vietnam, Philippines, which are mainly onshore and offshore market, huge potential for both technologies and Thailand and Indonesia to follow. In the near term, was we'll continue to be onshore market, but maybe in 10 years' time, we will move into their offshores. That's interesting and a good transition towards the subject of today, which is Vietnam offshore wind. Essentially, in Vietnam, you had feed-in tariff for both solar and onshore wind, which both of them have achieved their deadline. And now everyone, as you said, is expecting for the PDP-8 and uh, investors are waiting to know what is going to happen next. On the other hand, the government has been quite keen to kickstart the offshore wind industry. And you've been discussing with the government to uh, set up the framework to kickstart this industry. Just as an introduction, it would be quite interesting if you could explain what are the key differences between onshore and offshore wind and what are the key challenges and advantages of developing wind projects offshore. Yeah. So onshore is technology that apply to the onshore on the land and offshore are those who are basically standing in the oceans. There is maybe one category that is a little bit confusing. It's the intertidal projects. Intertidal means that projects are, are basically in the intertidal area where when the tide is low, then the land is exposed. A lot of the cases of the intertidal projects, they are still applying the onshore turbine, onshore technology, onshore foundation. Lots of things are not different from the onshore technology. The real difference between the onshore and the offshore lies into the turbine technology, the turbines that being applied, the design of that, and also the foundation of the offshore turbine, the installation design. All this are kind of designed just for the offshore or the marine environment. You have to consider lots of challenges that are marine engineering related, such as foundation design, foundation installation, whether you apply different O&M strategies for like marine erosion, that really differentiate the onshore and offshore technology. And because of all these challenges for marine related kind of engineering and other concerns that give offshore wind projects a much higher risk profile and also a much higher cost to start with. So if we look at the offshore technology and the advantage of, of that comparing with the onshore, it mainly lies into A, it yields or gives you much, much higher energy output. All the risks that you are going to take for putting it offshore is in exchange of its higher and more stable energy output. It has a much higher capacity factor, which means that offshore wind is such as kind of energy sources that gives you stable output, which is comparable to that of the usual baseload that we always talk about. So that is the major, major difference, kind of separated from all other renewable technology, that it has a much lower variability issue than the other renewable technology. The other one that is the cost. 
Usually we would say cost for offshore wind is very, very high, which is true because of all the technical challenges and risks we just mentioned. But the other thing that people always don't look at is that there is also huge cost reduction potential for offshore wind technology. The past 10 years, we've already seen 70% of cost reduction at global level. Another 30% is likely to happen in the next five years. That is the global level. And if we look at different market or national level market development, we also find a trend that every four to five gigawatt of installation, you can see a significant cost reduction in one market. And this significant cost reduction can range from like 50% to 60 or even 70% in some of the market. And the reason is that every four to five gigawatt of installation, you generate a round of maturity of the supply and of lots of like ports and infrastructure issues. And by ironing out all, all of that in that four to five gigawatt of installation, you automatically bring down the cost in this market. And that is something that quite significant, but not usually talked about when we talk about the cost. And that's also one of the key messages that we keep sending to new markets, to the government, that you just support the first four to five gigawatt, then this industry will yield you a much, much more competitive energy sources that you can use. The other benefits are like you basically are providing an energy source that is like depending on local resources that you are you're shielding your energy market from the volatility of the international fuel market, which is especially true yeah, given the war and the volatility in the global energy market. That's interesting. And going back to Vietnam, could you introduce Vietnam's situation with regard to its offshore wind asset and its offshore wind resources? Yeah, in terms of wind resources, probably one of the best in Southeast Asia region. It has 160 gigawatt of offshore utilizable technical potential and 475 of technical potential. So maybe after 10 years, we will find other technology or more advanced technology that for the explore that 475. And also comparing, for example, with the Philippines, which is mainly a floating offshore uh, market. Vietnam's have huge potential for fixed bottom, which is much more cost competitive and also much more easy to implement. So that's the wind resources side. If you look at the wind asset or the, the, the readiness of the supply chain, relatively in the region, Vietnam possess already existing offshore oil and gas industry, which is relatively ready or relatively easy to transform into offshore wind, which is another advantage comparing with other markets in the region. So with all this, I think it's it's quite a ready kind of offshore wind market. As we discussed earlier, Vietnam is transitioning from solar and onshore wind from a feed-in tariff regime towards an auction regime. For offshore wind, we're discussing about transition tariff and transition FIT. So could, could you present the key characteristic of these two frameworks, being the FIT and the auction regime, and explain why Vietnam is considering such transition. Yeah, we are proposing such transition to be the one to help Vietnam to develop. And we're developing our route to market position or roadmap for this market. One of the key things is to propose this transition to be the choice, to be the roadmap to make it happen. By saying it's a transition, we basically are saying that 
we, we do need to see the auction happen. But before the auction happen, you need that FID, or we correctly call a transition tariff to happen before the auction. Why this is so important and what's the difference between the two is that a transition tariff is a process where you don't introduce a competitive process to determine the tariff itself. But in the auction, you do introduce competitive bidding process to determine the tariff level. And the difference of these two is mainly because in early markets, especially early new offshore wind markets, if you introduce the competitive process for determining the auction, which in the end usually becoming the determining factor, despite whether you have other non-cost or non-tariff kind of criteria, it always is the most important determining factor. You basically are introducing a process where um, the bidders or the developers will have to bid very, very aggressively on the cost, on the, on the tariff. And given that this is new market, nobody really understands the cost, the risks. It's very and highly likely that you ended up selecting the most aggressive, but not necessarily the most reliable and sensible developers which is what we've observed in lots of other markets who start and jump into the competitive auction directly on offshore wind, including France, China, Turkey, that in the end, all the winners in the first round ended up to be very ambitious, very aggressive developer, failed to really deliver what they committed. And the real reasonable and reliable developer will usually ended up in the middle of the price range were not selected. And that kind of failure of delivery of the product usually lead to up to 10 years of delays of the industry development in all these markets that failed and also led to a missed opportunity for developing your supply chain. In that 10 years. And also after those kind of failure, it would take the government lots of energy to bring back the investors to restart the, the industry again. So those are the missed opportunities or opportunity costs for, for starting this. And another reason that I want to say that we propose this transition tariff is that if you look at the PDPA target of 2030, we have only like eight years to deliver that. And if we put all the uh, product development milestones year by year, and also if you take into consideration that a real auction would take more than two years, but in some of the cases, like up to four years to develop plus implement, then you don't have much time. Unless you start a transitional FIT, which gives you the time to kickstart the first batch of projects that buys you time for developing an auction, then you keep the ball rolling at an early stage. That's the only way that you can still meet the target by 2030 and also uh, make the auction happen. That's why it's called a transition tariff or ta transition mechanism. So that was what you were advising the government to implement in Vietnam. And as you said, it is challenging to manage the transition appropriately. Could you talk about example of countries that manage well this transition? One of the major kind of successful case in Asia for starting offshore wind in a very short time with lots of success is Taiwan. And Taiwan actually started the offshore wind development first with a FIT to cover the first 3.8 gigawatt, almost 4 gigawatt, and then followed by an auction with another 2 gigawatt. And, and the reason that they did this is basically they studied the European cases and they learned and exactly understand what I just described. 
why this is needed, why competitive process cannot be used to start a new market, and why in the beginning you basically need to give that stability to kick it off. And they understand it perfectly. That's why and how they, they made it. And if you look at other countries in, in Asia, China is almost the same. They started like in, back in 2010, the first round of offshore wind auction, which people almost forgot and didn't never talked about. It's only people who really follow China very closely, who remembers that in the early 2010s, that was the first round of auction for offshore wind that took place. But that round of auction didn't really end up with anything because all the developers ended up being selected, were not able to deliver anything. Then mm. nothing happened until they introduced the feed-in tariff back in 2014 or 16. And then that started the real offshore development until they moved from FIT to competitive process. And if you look at Japan, it's the same. Most of the other nations in the region, in Asia Pacific, started with a much more stabilized kind of mm. renumeration system. And moving forward, how do you see the offshore wind industry in Asia developing? What do you think in 10 years this industry will be looking like? One is that it will definitely become a major means for most nations to achieve their net zero goal. And two is that cost competitiveness will be so significant that makes it a natural choice for replacing fossil fuel. It's not because you have to fulfill net zero goals or climate change. It just it's the natural choice just because of the cost issue. And third is that you will see millions of employments, jobs being like generated in this sector and also contributing to the local economy. And last, it's the implication of the power to X and also the, the cost reduction of, of the storage will enable a wider application of offshore wind and makes it possible that electricity generated from offshore wind, that's a clean energy, will penetrate into other segments of our economy, into heating, into transportation, that we're able to basically see the electrification of the whole economy. That was fascinating. Thank you so much for your time living and uh, it was fantastic to have you on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs>